As we prepare to go to God's word, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. And as we continue our study through the book of Philippians this morning, we're going to be in verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 18. If you're using one of the Bibles under the chairs, you can find it on page 981. If you're here this morning, you don't have a Bible of your own. Feel free to take that Bible as our gift to you. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Title for this morning's sermon is Christians Need to Work Out. Now, if that's already causing some existential angst, no, this message will not be condemning your diet. Neither will it be promoting some kind of spiritualized uh, fitness test like the Daniel diet. This will not be a message questioning your current workout habits or your lack of workout habits. The Bible talks about physical workout being of some benefit, right? So there is time and place to talk about those things. But much of the world that we live in prioritizes physical well-being, prioritizing doing much to keep your body strong and your body healthy, uh, to work out, to exercise, to eat right. Those things are good and have their place. But not so much of the world talks about spiritual fitness. It talks about what it is uh, to, to be a Christian and for others to see that you're a Christian. What it is to have a life that promotes health, not simply physically, but spiritually. And what's required in that process. And so in our passage this morning, we see the Apostle Paul highlight not some of the physical things, but the spiritual things that Christians must do. Just as you must eat right, you must work out to maintain a healthy body physically. Oh, so you must work out. You must do certain things to maintain a healthy spiritual life. Right. And so the main idea that we see in this passage of Philippians chapter two, verses 12 through 18 is this. Christians don't sit on our salvation. We work it out as God works within us to be his witnesses in a wicked world. You can find it on the sermon page in your bulletins. Again, the main idea of this passage, Christians don't sit on our salvation. We don't sit stagnant. We don't sit on our salvation. We work it out as God works within us to be his witnesses in a wicked world. 
The Christian life, in other words, is an active life, an effort-filled life, not to earn our salvation, but to demonstrate it. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul gives us three commands that we are to follow as part of our spiritual fitness plan. Number one, be diligent. Be diligent. We see that in verses 12 through 13. Number two, be distinct. We see that in verses 14 through 16a, first part of verse 16. And number three, be delighted. We see that in the latter part of verse 16 through verse 18. Three points, be diligent, be distinct, be delighted. First, be diligent. Look at verse 12. Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And just by way of being good, observant Bible readers, we need to read this text in context. Paul almost forces us to read this text in context. Just by the way, he starts verse 12. Therefore, we need to know what preceded this passage that the apostle is now building off of to make this current argument and command. Just before this, Paul commanded the Philippians up in verses 2 through 4 to, to be united, to be of one mind. And what did that mean? What did that require? That they humbly serve others by counting others as more significant than themselves and looking out for others' interests. And then he laid before them the incredible model of Jesus Christ in verses 5 through 11, who, though he was God, humbled himself by becoming a man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, here Paul draws off of what he's just called them to and to the model he's drawn their eyes to and says, therefore, as, as you've always obeyed, even now do so. No, notice how Paul begins with praising past duty. They always obeyed, which is a remarkable statement. Because by nature, this is not who these people were. These believers who make up the Philippian church were once like all other people who ever lived, marked by disobedience to God and disobedience to God's word, rebels to God and casting off all of God's rules. But since Paul came and preached the gospel to the Philippians 10 years before writing this letter, what's marked their lives in the decades since then from conversion until now has been obedience to the Lord and obedience to his word. Friends, the gospel changes people. It changes people from being disobedient to obedience, from being wretches to being righteous. I pray that encourages you as you look at your own life, a life that as you cycle back through the years and months, you can point out quite distinctly how you once disobeyed so much of God's word, how you once disregarded so much of God's word. You knew they were commands, but they had no binding on you. And yet, since you've been saved, 
What's marked your life has not been perfection. Oh, but it certainly has been obedience. Steadily, surely, step by step. Seeing what the Lord says and working to do what he says. Praise God for your past obedience. And keep on progressing to present and future obedience. I mean, Paul says keep on going. Look back with me at verse 12 and, and see how Paul moved from commending past obedience to commanding present ongoing obedience. Now in the present, he says, even while I'm absent from you, while I'm in prison in Rome, obey. How? By working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, this is why words matter. You change one word in that sequence and you got a whole different religion. If Paul commands work for your salvation, what you have is a works-based system where your deeds earn your deliverance, where your labor leads God to love you and to save you. But that is not at all the testimony of the Bible. The Bible says we are saved by grace, not at all a result of works, so that no one may boast. Oh, there is a work that produces salvation, but it's unilaterally God's work. I mean, look back with me at at chapter one, if you turn your eyes over to chapter one and see how Paul attributes the work of salvation solely to God. Look at chapter one, verse six. Paul says that that God who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God began the good work. He gave new life and he will bring it to fruition. Salvation is a work that he accomplishes through the death and resurrection of his son for sinners like us and grants to us through faith. And even that faith is not something that we conjure up from inside, but that itself is also a gift from God. I mean, look again at chapter one. This time, drop your eyes down to verse 29. Paul says there that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, not only should you believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Paul's point there is to talk about suffering not as a punishment, but as a gift from God, just as faith to believe in Jesus is a gift from God. The Bible is very clear in the passages we just looked at to more explicit passages like Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 and, 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 and uh, Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 that salvation belongs to the Lord. We do absolutely no work to save ourselves, but rather we place faith in the Lord and in his son, Jesus, whom he sent to do all the work that was required. Jesus lived the perfect life of obedience for us. Jesus took our sins on the cross and died for us. Jesus ate up, drank up all the wrath of God that was reserved for us. Jesus got up from the grave, rose three days later for us. And Jesus now holds out salvation in his hands for us. So that when we turn from our sins and simply place our trust in Jesus, God declares us righteous in his sight. It's a one-time declaration that's referred to as justification. And it's totally 
God's work. But once we're declared righteous, once we're saved, we don't remain stagnant. No, we're then commanded to go live righteously. Not to earn our salvation, that's never the case, but to exhibit our salvation, to exercise our salvation, to, as Paul says, work it out. You see, salvation is not static. It's dynamic. Saved is not merely a status you have. It's a life you live. We're all called, as Paul said earlier in this letter, to live lives worthy of the gospel that we say saved us. It's the part of salvation that we read about earlier in our statement of faith called sanctification. The ongoing outworking of our union with Christ, where we persistently fight sin and pursue holiness. Unlike in justification, where we do no work, it's only God's work. In sanctification, we work. We put, to, put forward maximum effort partnering with God to live for him in the process of being conformed more and more to the image of his very son. So, so friends, while it might sound religious to say, let go and let God, or to cry out, Jesus, take the wheel. The Bible more poignantly teaches us, no, Jesus already has the will. You put your hand on it as well. You see, the Christian life is not a passive life. It requires work, labor, efforts. And that needs to be said because sometimes I think the way that we think about and talk about Christianity is as if it's about a one-time decision. We tell people to repent and believe, which we should. But we need to remind them that throughout their entire Christian lives, what they must be doing is keep on repenting and to keep on believing. I think failure to tell folks that leaves them surprised when that same old temptation remains even after they've been Christians for a few years or a few decades. I thought God would totally take that thing away by now. No, that temptation still lingers. And it might stick around for the rest of your life. And for the rest of your life, you need to put that thing to death and not act upon it. That's part of why God gives us a local church. To help us to keep on repenting and keep on believing to keep on fighting, to keep on living like we belong to the Lord we say we love. And this command to, to work out our salvation, your own salvation. Like so many of the other commands in this book, it's not a singular command, but a plural command. It's not an individual command, it's a corporate, a congregational command. While every person is responsible for their own walk with the Lord, for their own conduct, they're not the only ones responsible. Just as it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a church to mature a Christian. So it's part of our jobs as church members then is to help each other grow in the faith, to help each other show our salvation in love and good works. That's why it's so dangerous to call yourself a Christian and yet not submit to the members and leaders of a local church to watch over and care for you, 
to help see if you're actually a healthy Christian working out and walking out what you claim to be. But ultimately, it's God who's the audience. It's before him that we all live our lives, which is why Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's not being afraid of God. Once you turn from your sins and put your trust in, in Christ, understand what the Bible says. There's no condemnation left. There's no judgment. There's no reason to be scared of God. But there is reason to be serious before him, to be sober minded, to be reverent, to, to live life with a sense of awesomeness. Because we realize that it is the almighty God who is watching every word I say, every step I take, every deed I do. I live in light of him. He sees all. He knows all. That crushes you if you don't know the Lord. It comforts you if you do, though, to live life before him. But, but just in case, you, you might be feeling like the stakes are too high. Like there's just too much pressure, like we're almost destined to stumble and fall, to work out our salvation before God Almighty. Look at the sweet comfort that Paul gives. We work out our own salvation, not only in the presence of God, but actually empowered by God. Paul claims, I can give you this bold, broad command to work out your salvation because of the reality that he follows up with in verse 13. For or because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Look at the amazing assertions in this verse. First, God works. There is a God and he is not asleep. Maybe you need that reminder this morning. Friends, the federal government may have been on the brink of a shutdown, but the forever God never furloughs. He never takes breaks. There's never a spending gap that means that God is anxious about what he's going to do. No, Jesus, remember in, in, in John, in the Gospel of John, he says, my father is always working, even as I am always working. Do you believe that? Are you confident about that? What might be pulling at your heart? Quietly convincing you that that's not the case. Is it all the, the, the chaos and the crime you see in our communities? Or maybe it's all the calamity you see in your family or your home. Perhaps it's all the unanswered prayers. You've prayed for that spouse or for that child's salvation for years now and no answer. You prayed for that uncle, that cousin to finally get their life right. And they're seemingly getting worse and worse each day. And maybe what you see in the world or don't see in the world is casting serious doubt at the present moment that God is at work. I don't see him. Where is he at work? Paul points us to where? In you. God who works in you. Saints, see here the wide sphere of God's sovereignty. He rules and reigns and righteously works everywhere, including in the very hearts of his people. And here's the wonder of what it is to be a Christian. You don't live life on your own. 
When we turn from our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ, God not only saves us to live with him forever, God sends his spirit to live in us forever. And again, what is God doing when he resides in us, when he takes up residence in us? Right? He's not squatting. Right? God don't just come into the house and just sit there like a bum, like a couch potato. Now, when God comes into your heart, he is working. Well, how is he working? Well, look again at verse 13. He works in us both to will and to work. God is constantly transforming even our desires from wanting to do what the flesh wants to do to wanting to do what the Lord is pleased with. He gives us the aspirations to attack sin. He gives us the desire to say no to sin and yes to him. He gives us the inkling to read our Bibles, to pray even when we don't feel like it, to come to prayer meetings on a Sunday evening, even when I got other things to do. He gives us the inkling to evangelize, to say a word of encouragement to someone needing comfort, to help a suffering saint, to forgive. He's the one who gives us all the inclinations to sacrifice time for others. And he gives us the strength to not just will or want to do those things, but to actually do them, to actually work, to labor, to live for him. This is an incredible passage. God gives you all you need to do what he requires, to do what pleases him. He does it all, not because we deserve it, but for his own good pleasure. So then there is absolutely nothing that God commands of us that we cannot do. Let me say that again. There is absolutely nothing that God commands of us that we cannot do because it's never just us doing it. We work as God works in us. And so I pray that that helps you commit today, right now to killing apathy, to killing a defeated mentality as it relates to ongoing or indwelling sin and temptation, as it relates to living a holy life, some of us have lived such as losers, like, I can't stop this. I can't do this. wonder what that is for you. What are some constant sins that you keep falling prey to? Perhaps feel like you have to give in to. Is it sexual sin? Is it anger? Is it passivity and apathy? Failure to actively love and cherish and nourish your wife. Failure to actively love and support and encourage your husband. Is it selfishness? Perhaps you feel like I, on my own, just can't stop doing these things. Well, you'd be absolutely right. You alone cannot. But as a Christian, you alone no longer exists. There is no you alone anymore once you've trusted in Christ. It's you and dwelt by him, the creator and sustainer of the entire universe. It's you and dwelt by him, by God's very spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So why do you keep claiming that you can't do anything? 
The very spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you. Or is God not powerful to you? Or do you believe that God can't raise you up from that temptation? Death in the grave for three days is easier for God to work out of than that addiction, than that struggle, than that attitude. God can raise Jesus from the dead, but he can't keep me from responding in kind when I'm criticized. God is at work in you. The same God who spoke the world into existence. The same God who bursts out his son from a tomb is the same God who lives inside each and every Christian. And the same God who says, live like you believe that. It says the great African theologian Augustine once said, Lord, grant what you command and then command whatever you will. Lord, if you give me what I need, then you can tell me to do anything because you also will give me the means to accomplish what you call me to do. I'm saying we ought to be diligent to work out our salvation, to produce the kind of life that is in accord to us being born again as if the one who we love lives in us, powerfully working in us. And number one, be diligent. Be diligent as Christians. Secondly, in this passage, we see that Paul calls us to be distinct. Number two, be distinct. I haven't given this broad command to work out your salvation in verse 12 and giving the basis for it in verse 13 because it's God who works in you both to will and to work. Paul now moves on to some specific applications of what that means. And he does not start small. <laughs> Look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. I mean, hear the comprehensive, all-encompassing nature of that command. Do all things without grumbling or arguing. You see, for the, for the Lord, it's not just what you do but the manner in which you do them that matters. It's easy to do things you like with a glad heart, with a unified spirit, but all things, chores, homework, serving in the nursery, serving other saints here, giving my time to others, sacrificing all things, impossible. Well, yes. Unless what I just said is true, that God is at work in you both to will and to work. Yeah, I love how in this book, we're getting at some of those deep heart things that need to change. That are lodged deep inside of us and need to be rooted out of us. I mean, when you're converted and, and you first start to grow, you notice that you kill some of those surface sins pretty easily, pretty readily. Right? And praise God for that. That's no small thing. You, you stop getting high. You stop getting drunk. You stop sleeping around. Friends, if you claim to be a Christian and you have not stopped getting high, stop getting drunk, stop sleeping around, you need to seriously consider if you are a Christian. But for a lot of us, you, you see a kind of drastic change in your life. Other people see a drastic change in your life. The old song says, people I used to see, I don't see no more. Places I used to go, I don't go no more. Oh, there's been a change in my life. 
a change worthy of giving testimony about. We praise the Lord that you ain't who you used to be. Oh, well, there's some other sins that you find to be formidable foes. They don't fall so easily, right? They aren't so easy to spot and they aren't easy to kill. Sins like selfishness. Sins like discontentment. And Paul in this book requires that we work hard to kill those things as well. You say Christian maturity is not just, hey, I conquer those big things that everybody can see. Oh, now let's go work on that heart. What's going on inside you? It's why Paul commands the Philippians in verses two and three of this chapter to do nothing from selfish ambition, but to consider others more significant than yourselves. Why? Because Paul is trying to take dead aim at selfishness and self-centeredness. It's why here he commands us to do all things without grumbling. Because grumbling comes from within. To do all things without disputing because disputing comes from within. I mean, think of what causes grumbling. Discontentment. Disappointment. Ingratitude. A sense of entitlement. I deserve something and when I don't get it, I grumble and complain. Think about what causes disputing or arguing. Unmet expectations. Hurt feelings. Pride that feels like my way, my stance has to be heard and has to be correct. It takes a deep work of the spirit within us to kill grumblings, to kill arguing, and it takes deep effort by us to put those kind of hidden, lodged-in sins to death. As you read this command to do all things without grumbling, perhaps one of the first thing that, things that jumps to your mind is, is the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Over and over again, God's people in the Old Testament were marked by grumbling. Exodus chapter 15, verse 24, the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what should we drink? Exodus 16, 2, the whole congregation of people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Exodus 17, 3, the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses. Leading Moses in Exodus 16, verse 8 to respond, your grumbling is not against us. You're grumbling against the Lord. They grumbled against God because most of them were not believers. Paul here, writing to the new people of God, the new covenant community, the church, made up of only believers, says our lives should look drastically different from Old Testament Israel because we have what Old Testament Israel did not God's very spirit living inside of us all the time. So Paul is calling us to look distinctly different from the old people of God. With most of them, God was not pleased and they were destroyed. But Paul is not just calling us to be distinct from them, but also to be distinct from the rest of the world around us. Look at verse 15. Paul gives the purpose behind the command to do all things without grumbling and disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. 
Paul says, do this so that you might prove to belong to God. Prove that, that those who belong to God are distinct and different from those who belong to the world. They don't reflect the world's standards. They reflect God and his light in the world. You know, some, sometimes I think we, we read the Bible and we get an idea that the people in the Bible times lived in a world drastically different from ours. They were able to follow Jesus more easily because things weren't as bad back then. Friends, that's a lie from the pit of hell. The world, from the day Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin entered into the world, has been totally dark, opposed to God and his people. And God has always called his people to live faithfully for him, even as a minority and amidst persecution and oppression in the world. When we read this letter to the Philippians, it's not addressed to the entire city of Philippi. It's to the church of Philippi. These believers who made up a tiny population of the entire city who lived among people who hated God and hated them. Believers who were married to unbelieving spouses, who worked for unbelieving bosses, who were surrounded by unbelieving neighbors, who all loved sin and lived for themselves. But these believers didn't leave Philippi to start their own little exclusive Christian colony. No, they remained in Philippi. They remained in their marriages. They remained in their jobs. They remained in their neighborhoods. When they became new creatures in Christ, they did not move to new settings. They didn't say I need a new surrounding. They stayed where the Lord put them so they could display just how new, how transformed their lives really were. Notice how Paul says that by their conduct, by their doing all things without grumbling or arguing in a world that's marked by constant complaining and fighting, they show themselves to be blameless or above reproach. They show themselves to be children of God, born again by him. Listen, as they live in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, shining as lights in, in the midst of a dark world. Saints, God saved us from the world. From living like the rest of the world, from following worldly pursuits and pleasures. But he did not send us out of the world. I mean, in fact, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 15 through 18. Listen to what Jesus prays to his heavenly father. Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. But that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. You understand that? God saved you, not so you could remove yourself from all the sinners. Them dirty rascals, oh my gosh. God saved you to send you right back into the midst of the, all the madness you were in before so that by your life you might look different. Amen. You, you remember the, the story in the Gospels of the, 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 the man with, who was demon-possessed? 
when Jesus cast out all the demons and the man followed Jesus and said, let me go with you. And Jesus said, nah, go back to your home. It was a pagan city. It was a Gentile territory. It was a Decapolis. It wasn't Judea. Jesus went and rescued this man. And you would think, okay, Jesus got another rider on his team. He's going to be with him for life. Jesus said, no, go, go back to your mama and daddy. Go back to your cousins and aunts and uncles. Go back to your coworkers and show them just how different you, your life is. Friends, I hope you don't despise where the Lord has you. Now, there might be some wisdom that sometimes when the Lord saves you, you need to remove yourself from certain friend groups. Some folks can be toxic. Let's not get that twisted. But if you try to buy the propaganda that's sometimes pushed in our country, that you can escape to some city that's going to be a Christian city or Christian society, understand that's not the Bible's desire for you. Christians ain't going to huddle in some kind of little holy territory. No, Christians are going to out. Understand, we want our church to be made up of only Christians, right? Only members. We want every single church member to come to church every single Sunday. But understand, what happens Sunday at around 1 p.m. is that you are sent out into the rest of the world to live like you love the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The Lord saved you, and Jesus said, I send you into the world. Jesus Christ intentionally left us in the world to live for him. As he is the light of the world, he's called us the light of the world to walk in his light. As Warner preached last week and to reflect his light and his glory all around us. So that's one way we do that is by, by being united as a church. If the church is marked by grumbling and arguing, then we look no different from the world. But if the church is marked by self-sacrificial love, if the church is marked by humility that submits to and serves others as more than self, if the church is marked by patience that forbears with one another's failings and forgives one another's faults, then it's a strong contrast to the world that's always at each other's throats. And is a strong witness to the power of Jesus Christ and his gospel. Friends, that takes effort. It takes intentionality. It takes constantly remembering who you are. Children of God. Constantly remember, remembering why God left you in the world. Not to butt out of the world. Nor to blend in with the world. But to shine brightly against the backdrop of the world's darkness. It takes remembering that you, every single day, represent God. More than you represent a team. More than you represent a company. More than you represent a, com a company. More than you represent an ethnicity. More than you represent a political party. You represent God. You are children of God. You are called to shine as lights of him. Oh, I hope we don't forget that some of us got that thing twisted and we think that there's some higher priority that we need to have our allegiance with, that people need to know us as. I wonder, what are you most known for? Or what do people know you for? Does it match the purpose God has for you and me? We are God's witnesses in the midst of wickedness. And how are we sustained as God leaves us here? 
sends us into these wicked and dark societies? How do we give sustenance to others? How are they sustained? We'll look at verse 16. By holding fast. Or better, holding forth the word of life. We cling to God's word, the the word about Christ, specifically the gospel that brings life. We remember the great sacrifice for Christ for us, how he obeyed God without any grumbling, even to the point of death on the cross, how he sacrificed his life for us and died for us, how he rose again to give us new life. We hold to that gospel message and we hold out that gospel message to others, proclaiming the same gospel that transformed our lives to make us look different, to make us live different, can also save you. Friends, if you're here this morning, that gospel message can and will save you. You can be saved. I wonder if you understand from this passage that you need to be saved. Because God makes distinctions. You understand here? Not everyone is a child of God. There's children of God in the midst of the world. Some people belong to God. Some people belong to the world. Belong to the darkness and walk in it. Some, sadly many in the world, are enemies and not children of God. Which side of the equation are you on? What would people around you say based on the life that you live? What would God himself say based on the life that you live? Turn from your sins. Give them over to Jesus. Turn to him in faith today, right now, that you might be saved, that you might be changed to live distinctly for the Lord, reflecting his image and his glory and proclaiming the life-transforming message of the gospel to others. God saves us and God sanctifies us to be distinct. So be distinct. Third and lastly, Paul commands in this passage to be delighted. Point number three, be delighted. I think one of the misconceptions of the Christian life is that devotion to Christ, devotion to his people with all the duties it requires is a kind of dry, grim, dour life. But Paul tells us this kind of life is actually brings delight. I mean, notice at the end of verse 16, after Paul has commanded these believers to work their salvation, to do all things without grumbling or arguing that they might be faithful witnesses in the world. He talks about what it's all for, what it's all leading to a future day when they'll meet Christ when he returns. And Paul wants them to live all out for Christ now so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Pay attention to the terms Paul uses there to describe his involvement with the Philippians. Run. Labor. He's called the Philippians the strenuous effort as Christians, but he practices what he preaches. Paul has strained, he's strived, he's exalted himself for the sake of the Philippians. He risked life to take the gospel to them. He coordinated efforts, he wrote letters, he sent messengers, he instructed them, he prayed tirelessly for them. And it's all worth it. 
He doesn't regret a minute of it. If it means that when they meet Christ, they'll be met with a well done, good and faithful servant. And Paul will then be proud, satisfied, content, knowing that all my labor was not in vain. None of it was wasted. Friends, here is the mindset we must have if we are to minister faithfully without growing weary. Yes, the Christian life requires work, hard work. And you know this, that in the midst of work, you can think it's pointless because you see little or no progress. Because you don't see immediate effects and you feel like your efforts are for nothing. I mean, think of all the hard work it is to to raise a child. From day by day, feeding them and changing them to sleepless nights when they're sick, to helping with homework, to cooking and cleaning, cooking and cleaning in a constant cycle over and over and over again. Selflessly serving all these years. It is exhausting. But some also know the joy of seeing that child grow up and move out the house and graduate and start their own family. You're like, all that work was worth it. You couldn't see it in the the little moments of life, but all that labor, all that sacrifice was worth it to produce this young man or this young woman. Oh, you know what it is to toil on a house project or, or yard work. You begin and you tirelessly work day after day with seemingly no end in sight. But when that job is finally finished, you look back at the finished product with delight. All that work. Worth it. Well, that's the mind Paul wants us to have here. All the hard work required. Fighting sin and helping other brothers and sisters fight sin and pursue Christ. In the midst of a world trying to constantly pull us the other way. All the investment of jumping into each other's messes, of bearing each other's burdens, of correcting each other and comforting each other and encouraging each other and meeting together with each other, worth it. When you consider the end, as we need not think just about the daily grind of living for Christ. And it is a grind. Don't just think of what you you see tomorrow or what you'll see next week or next month or even next year. Think about the day when you'll see countless brothers and sisters crossing the finish line, finishing the race, meeting their savior with surety and confidence because of their continued commitment to him and the Lord himself commending them and welcoming them into his eternal kingdom. And you know that you help them get there. And he will commend you for all your efforts. None of it. Not a single hour or minute or second or sacrifice wasted. Now, I think some of us don't know deep delight in Christ because we keep trying to hold back. We keep trying to leave a little bit in the tank. Friends, it's generally true that you'll get out what you put in. If you keep putting minimal effort into living as a Christian, doing the bare minimum, 
reading the Bible every once in a while, going to church once a month, only seeing other members when you come to church. Don't be surprised if you feel disconnected both to Jesus and to his people. Don't be surprised if your knowledge and your affections are not growing. Some of you need to stop dipping your toe into the water of the Christian life. Some of y'all need to dive all in with your clothes on. Some of y'all need to stop trying to sprinkle just a little drop of, of myself into other people's lives. And you need to pour everything out into serving Jesus and his people. It's the total commitment, total devotion that Christ calls us to. And it's the total commitment to Christ and his people that actually brings joy and delight. Notice Paul says in verse 17, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. And Paul uses imagery there of being poured out as a drink offering to talk about giving his entire life. Even if it means giving up his life and dying in order to present the Philippians and their faith and their service up to God. If it takes me dying for you to keep living faithfully for the Lord, I am more than willing and even happy to do that. You know, most of us are only happy when we're being poured into. Paul is glad to be poured out, modeling his Savior who poured out his life for us in agony on the cross and yet at the same time rejoicing at the prospect of the eternal glory that he would have and that all the people he was working to save at that very moment would have with him. Saints, like Jesus, like Paul, we can find real deep delight and joy in serving God by serving his people, laboring so that others might live as well. As Christians, we don't simply sit on our salvation. We constantly work it out as God works within us to be his witnesses in the midst of a wicked world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us commitment, zeal, desire to do what you are working in us to do. Oh, Lord, help us to remember that we do nothing on our own. All is of you. And so, Lord, we pray that, that our hope will be found in you, that you would fuel us to live faithful lives to you, and that we will be your faithful witnesses even in the world you left us in. We pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.